Good morning, Second Prez. I bring greetings again from St. Louis. And according to the students this past week, I apparently also brought the cold with me. Uh, my apologies. Uh, I'm going to just confess this is my first time in Memphis. It's been a good past few days. Um, I have some connections with Second Prez, believe it or not. Uh, the first is just this. I actually spent a week with Sandy Wilson in my doctoral class, and so I was able to sit with him. And under his teaching, uh, Pastor George has been a great encouragement just in terms of how he leads. And this is just the most random one. Uh, in 1999, when I was graduating from Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, uh, I was looking for a job. And so I decided, hey, there's a posting for this random church called Second Pres in Memphis for a youth pastor. And I sent my resume in. But unfortunately, the Lord did not will that. So it's almost providential that somehow after many of these years, I'm actually here. And I am humbled and honored to be here. In many ways, I do not feel as though I'm worthy. And yet again, our confidence comes not in us, uh, but it comes in the standing of the word of God. And as we do so, may we sit humbly under that. I've been given this topic of justice and racial reconciliation in this month of gospel priorities. And I will say this, it's one of those things where I think oftentimes we can get tired by. And the reason why is simply this, right? We think to ourselves that we get it, but we often do not. C.S. Lewis said this, we have an innate sense and a natural longing for justice. In some ways we get that, right? Even young kids can look out and if there's kids fighting on a playground, they know that something is wrong. How much more so as we think in our present day and context of looking at the injustices of our world, the wrongs of this world, and we as the people of God in particular might respond in such a way where we're able to say simply this, that which is wrong the Lord Jesus calls us to as his people, that we might desire to seek and repair all those things for the sake of his kingdom. A couple of just other things I want to say before I get into the text, which is just this. Um, I've been really encouraged by my time here in Memphis, and more specifically out of the ministry of Second Press. Not just because of the fact that there are things like gospel priorities in which I think are kingdom values that are necessary for the church to be reminded of, but just as I've heard countless stories of how Second Prez has desired to be really a blessing, not for themselves, but much like in light of Genesis 12, blessed to be a blessing, to see the flourishing of Memphis and that countless students at Memphis City Seminary simply echoed that. I want to give a couple biographical things before we dive into Isaiah 58. Uh, I, I just started Covenant Theological Seminary. For 23 years, I was a pastor. And so I'm going to actually say this. For the past three years, I haven't been preaching, so I might be a little rusty. I'm hoping it's like riding a bike. You just kind of have it as second nature. The other thing I'm going to make as a caveat is just this. I also talk fast, and I know some of you are already saying that. Please bear with me. It's how the Lord has fashioned me. Um, but three years ago, I was in Philadelphia, and if I was in Philadelphia and I had not received and taken this call to Covenant Theological Seminary, here's what I would have been doing. I would have been on the school board, because uh, that's where I was and I was elected to, and secondarily, I would have been a pastor. Two notes on that. First is this. Uh, would you please pray for pastors across the world? In the midst of this pandemic, I've never seen a time in which so many pastors have been discouraged, have left the ministry, and are literally asking questions, what am I doing in this time? If I can encourage you, pray for not only the pastors here at Second Prez, but continue to pray for the pastors around the world. Secondarily, if I was a school board member, imagine during a pandemic, what would have happened in the stresses I had. Whatever gray hairs I might have would have been all the more exasperated. But let me tell you a quick story. When I was first elected to on the school board in the district that I was in, one of the most fascinating things happens is that what you do is your first responsibility as an elected school board member is to lead the assembly in the Pledge of Allegiance. Now, I don't know about you. I don't say the Pledge of Allegiance very often. 
But in that first meeting that I had to lead the assembly, I thought to myself, man, this is so strange because it brought me back to memories of my childhood. I grew up in Southern California, in Huntington Beach specifically. I'm the son of an immigrant. My parents were Korean. They came in 1970 as immigrants as part of what many refer to as the third wave of Korean immigration here into the United States. As a result of the 1965 Immigration and Naturalization Act that brought in providentially in the missions class, we talked about the diaspora, 30,000 Korean immigrants here in the United States. And so when people ask the question, man, why are there so many Koreans here in the United States? It's a result of that. And then you ask the question, why are there so many Koreans who are Presbyterians? And it's largely because of the fact that Christians have responded to the great call of missions, and they went to Korea. And so in this great providential act of the diaspora, they came here, and when they, what they did oftentimes is plant churches. And so in a providential act, I almost think it's fascinating that as a Korean-American who's a product of Presbyterian missionaries who went into the rural parts of Korea, raised this young boy from Southern California to not only go and pastor, not only to go and plant churches, and literally to continue to proclaim the gospel. With that said is this, as an immigrant, I do remember the tension I felt when we've said the Pledge of Allegiance. In particular, that last line in which we say, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. It didn't take me long in those early years to think through and ask myself this question. It doesn't seem apparent that there is justice for all. It could be my own tensions of being between two different worlds in which I never thought of myself as an American, nor did I ever think of myself as a Korean. I felt the sense of sojourning. The levels of aggressions or even more specific things of, of aspects of anti-racism or racism that were part of it. But nevertheless, even just looking around the world that I lived in to ask that question, it seems to be as though there wasn't liberty and justice for all. The fabrics and the brokenness of our world were apparent. I'm not a historian. I don't want to go into the history of the Pledge of Allegiance. But at least it called my attention to think through this idea of what would it look like, and I'm not going to nationalism, but for the people of God to consider the kingdom of God that would actually be evident to be able to say things like, if we were to look out into our world to be able to say that the gospel of the kingdom calls us to be able to say that we would look to say, indeed, we are a people that believe in liberty and justice for all, of which I take our sermon title for today. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Isaiah chapter 8. We're reading the entire chapter, Isaiah 8, verses 1 through 14. Hear now a reading of the word of the Lord. Cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask me of righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is this such the fast that I choose? A day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day and acceptable to the Lord? 
Is, is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness? To undo the straps of the, of the yoke? To let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in the scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a water garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. If you turn back your root from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways, or seeking your own pleasure, or talking idly, then... You shall take the light in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And all of God's people say, Amen. Amen. Our country, our nation, has received obviously a lot of things with respect to civil rights social justice, justice in all different uh, forms. In the midst of the aftermath of the civil unrest for the past several years of our country, especially after the horrific unjust deaths of Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, George Floyd, and countless others, there was a chant that became relatively popular that we saw at protests. And the chant was something to this effect, no justice, no peace, no justice, no peace. And just to make sure we get it, because obviously that's a homonym, but we would say it as N-O, justice, no peace, K-N-O-W, no justice, no peace. And here's the thing about that very phrase. People debate where it came from. We could say it was of civil unrest that was actually done within the 1980s, which actually will remind ourselves that the fabric of social injustice has continued to be part of the fabric of what we've seen in our culture. Many have dated it back to 1967, where MLK said something to this effect, there can be no justice without peace, and there can be no peace without justice. And yet this very idea of justice, of knowing justice, where I want to call our attention to, is not necessarily in the civil rights stuff, although that's important for us, I think, to pay attention to. The question I want to start with is this for us as the people of God. Do we know what justice is? Do we know this peace, the peace of God that surpasses all understanding? And here's the problem within the church today that at least I see and I want to make as an observation for you this morning. The sad reality is when we speak of social justice or we speak of justice, there's usually two types of reactions within the church. There's one, a form of what I would call syncretism that says, whatever the world is proclaiming that we think justice should be, let's jump on that bandwagon and let's be people of justice. But the problem is it's not informed scripturally. It's not informed in light of the gospel. It's not informed as an account to be able to say it reflects the very nature of the justice of the kingdom of God. And on the other hand, and maybe this is you and I hope it's not, 
But when you hear the word justice, we think of it as part of the liberal agenda. And we say to ourselves something like, not another sermon on justice. Not another time in which we may feel as though uh, this is something that's part of of a cultural trend that's moving us in the wrong direction. And to both, here is my call. Have we ever looked to ask the question, do we know what the justice of God is as it's presented in Scripture? Because by looking at Scripture, what we see is biblical justice, and I'm going to borrow a lot from Tim Keller because I think, one, he's written a tremendous amount on this. Two, I respect him greatly as a contemporary theologian who I think has talked a lot about this. And let me commend to you his book, Generous Justice, where some of these thoughts, by all means, are coming from. But Keller says it this way, biblical justice is not, first of all, a set of bullet points or a set of rules or guidelines. It is rooted in the very character of God and it's the very outworking of that character which is never less than the just that biblical justice is contrary to not contrary it's more than social justice and oftentimes again the church we in particular may miss that so with that said let me begin to try to define it in his book generous justice this is how Keller defines what justice is he says this to do justice means to go places where the fabric of shalom has broken down the weaker members of society are falling through the fabric and we as the people of God are called to repair it this past week at MCS I was tasked with the course World missions, are, uh, world missions and church planting, two of my deep passions in life. One of the ways that we define missions is that this mission, the mission of God is the missio dei. The mission of God is what he is doing in this world. And here's the reality of the great arching, overarching story is this. The world was created by God. We were fallen and broken within our sin. And God loves us so much that he did not leave us in our sin but he is seeking to restore and to repair all things unto the, restorations, uh, unto the restoration of the kingdom of God that awaits. With that said, is this, this idea of reparations or this idea of repairing is exactly what God is doing. God is on mission. Everything that was broken as a result of the fall, he looks and he says, I'm, I'm fixing that, I'm restoring that, I'm redeeming that. Dr. Williams at Covenant Theological Seminary has this illustration as it relates uh, to this idea of the meta story, this idea to say that we see the bigger picture of what is the gospel. And he likens it to this idea, imagine for a second, if you're having a party and you make this huge room that's pristine, you put up the balloons, you have the tablecloth, you have all the shenanigans that are part of what a party is. And all of a sudden, a group of hooligans come in and they decide, you know, we're just going to, you know, Um, destroy this room and everything else went Uh, he uses the illustration of biker gang I don't know why but he says a biker gang comes in and it ruins the room and that's much the story right God has created the world created the humanity creates culture perfectly and then all of a sudden sin and its brokenness comes in and it shatters it and ever since the fall that's what we see as evident but God who is so gracious and loving did not leave us in that both individually in terms of our salvation, that he did not leave us in our brokenness. But he comes back in, and what is the Father doing? What is Jesus doing? He's putting everything back in its rightful place. He's putting, he's done that with us salvifically or in terms of our salvation, but he's also doing that within this world. And so every time we see an injustice, here's the thing, it's a beckoning call of the gospel that we would join the Father on mission we would join the father in what he's doing 
that whenever there is an injustice, what is the father doing in response? He's seeking to repair it. Again, or as Keller would say, anywhere there is injustice, we're reminded that we pursue that justice as the father himself pursues it. The second thing about justice in terms of defining it that I said earlier, but I'm going to restate it because I think it's ever so significant is this. Justice is not rooted in a philosophy. Justice is not rooted in our cultural moment. Justice is rooted in the character of God. Deuteronomy 10, 17 to 19. For the Lord your God is a God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, for therefore, for you were once sojourners in the land of Egypt. We will turn back to this passage later, but here's the thing. Justice is not only fueled by grace, but justice is fueled because of the fact that it's rooted in the very character of God. Psalm 140.12, I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and will execute justice for the needy. The community of God looks and says what? To get t- if we are tired of speaking about justice, it's the same as though if we were tired of speaking about God because, again, God is a God of justice. That's why when we look at Scripture, Jesus does not negate this, right? But he actually exempt. He, it's, this is not just about the Old Testament. Even in Jesus, and not only in the passage that we read in Matthew chapter 25, but even in Matthew 23, he challenges, right, the religious leaders of the time. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe, mint, and deal, and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the other. Hear this. Doing justice is not the gospel, but yet it is an outworking of the gospel. Doing justice is not salvation, but it's a reflection of those by all means who have been saved. And that's what we're getting at. In Isaiah chapter 58, as we turn our attention to this text, uh, we're reminded of the fact that we want to rightly relate to God. And in this passage, the people of God are worshiping. And they're seeking to rightly relate to him. And many in the same ways we would think of this in terms of the greatest commands. We look at Matthew 22 and it says again, how are we to sum up the law? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, strength, mind, and soul. And so likewise, love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, by all means, this is how the law of God can be summed up. And in doing so, what he's highlighting is to be able to say, this maybe perhaps the question that we would do. How do we rightly relate to God? And how do we also rightly relate to one another? To relate to God correctly, and some have used maybe the the metaphor of the cross. It's not just a vertical, but again, it calls us both to be able to say, if we can rightly relate to him, so likewise we are able to then rightly relate to one another. And what's fascinating about this passage is this. The Bible starts to be able to, the, the passage in Isaiah 58, we see the people of God trying to rightly relate to God. And what we're going to draw our attention to in the three sections are simply this. How do we do so? Well, we see a false relationship verses 1 through 4. We see a faithful relationship, verses 5 to 7. And lastly, we see a fruitful relationship, verses 8 to 14. Follow with me, a false relationship. In verses 1 through 4, we see an indictment upon God's people. They're seeking to worship him. They are a religious people. Religious rituals done irresponsibly uh, irresponsibly and without proper motives do not gain divine favor. And there's a criticism and an indictment upon the people of God here. And it's sad because here's the thing, right? They're trying to worship. Scripture speaks and says what here? God is speaking to a people who, verse 2, seek me. They're religious. Day after day, they're faithful. 
They're eager to know. They have an ethical and a moral conscience, but they are rebellious. They are in sin, the charge is given against them. And we may ask ourselves the question, and, and just use the context here. The people of God here are fasting. I mentioned this in our class this week, but when we think about the discipline of fasting, I've challenged the class, and I said, I think that's a lost art. Here, the people of God are fasting and seeking and worshiping God. And we would think to ourselves, man, these are, like, and even in our day and context, we would say if someone's fasting, it seems as though they're really spiritual. They're really rightly seemingly relating to God. But yet, doesn't it, don't you find it strange that we should ask the question, if they're fasting, why is God saying, you seek me, but yet I'm also condemning this? I'm calling you out by saying this fast is a false fast. It's not the way that you ought to relate to me. In verse 2, here, see it again. God begins with this particular group of people, and it says, For day after day they seek me out. And it's talking about worship. It's talking about going to the temple. It's talking about this idea of offering prayers and tithing. It's what we're doing, uh, even in this room, the daily seeking of God, in, or the, the weekly seeking of God, maybe perhaps in corporate worship. So it's talking about the people who are very diligent. And yet, again, here are the calls of the people. Verse 3, why have we fasted? And you see it not. And his response is because you fast, but you seek your own pleasure. You oppress your workers. You do injustice. Verse 4, this type of fasting will not make your voice heard to be on high. For those of you engaged in prayer, maybe perhaps that's a lot for us. We would say to something through the effect of, Lord, I pray, but it doesn't seem like you hear me. And so likewise, here in this passage, we see Isaiah calling out the people of God and saying, you're seeking me, you're praying, you're offering up these prayers, but it doesn't seem like you're listening. Why? And again, he gives the answer. Because you exploit your worker the way you treat the poor. If you don't care about the poor, it just seems as though you're doing what? You're mouthing. It's almost empty religion, empty religious acts. Previous in the book of Acts, we see a very similar indictment upon God's people, Isaiah 1, 15 to 17. And there in the passage, it says this, When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. And even though you make many prayers, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's case. And here's the point that we're getting at. The reason why there's this indictment is because they're offering up these prayers, but they're turning a blind eye toward the issues of justice toward their time. And already Isaiah has given this indictment for the people of God, but here's the thing. Justice is all throughout Scripture. We don't need to turn to Isaiah and think, oh, okay, that's contextual to that time, or that's appropriate to the time of Israel when they were doing these things. But James gives the very same wording in a New Testament context, James 2, 15 to 17. What good is it, my brothers, if someone, someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if, if it does not have works, or my old translation, I grew up with the NI84, but if it's not accompanied by works, is a dead faith. 1 John 3, 17 through 18, more or less says the same thing. That if we so say that we think that we love God without caring about justice, it's as though it is a dead faith. You see, doing justice and caring for the poor 
is part of living faith. A heart and life dedicated to social justice is not the inevitable, is the inevitable sign of your faith. The way you treat the poor is how we regard God. Because the answer, the short answer is this, it's because God identifies with the poor. All throughout the New Testament, we see this. God calls our attention to looking at what many have called the quartet of the marginalized. If you look at Zechariah 7.10, it lists what it's out. In that time, culturally appropriate. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, and the poor. And let none of you devise evil against one another in your heart. And it's in light of these four that we see the reason why he's calling out these four, and this is not an exhaustive list, is because these were oftentimes the marginalized, or we could say those in that particular context, that were receiving unjust treatment. Or we go back to the fabric of this world. They were the ones where it was more apparent in realization as though something was broken within our world. And again, let me repeat what I said earlier. The way that we treat those who are those who have those who are in as victims of injustice is how we regard God Himself. With that said, is this Proverbs thirty-one eight through nine gives us this evidence, right? Uh, speak up for those who can't speak for themselves. Defend the rights of the poor and the needy. The way you treat the poor is how you regard God. Because why? Because God identifies with the poor. And think as a contrast of how amazed, how revolutionary that was in, in that time. If you're going to identify with someone, you don't want to identify with the weak, the poor, the marginalized. But that's exactly what God does. More explicitly, Proverbs 14, 31. If you insult the poor, you insult me. Or vice versa, this idea. If you saw uh, Proverbs 19, 17. If you give to the poor, you give to me. And do you see this? At the end of the day, what the Israelites were trying to do was a false sense of waiting because what they did was they wanted to seek God, but it was a false way, a false relationship of wanting to do so. In verse 5 to 7, we see then a change in Isaiah's indictment and what he goes to is to be able to call the people of God to a faithful relationship. If you look, it's the fast that God chooses. He says, you've been trying to seek me in this way, in your particular ways of doing it that it says, according to your pleasure— but this is the fast that God chooses, verses 5 to 7. I choose what? Humility to, for you to bow down your heart, to be people who are humble, to, humble, to uh, loose the bounds of the wickedness, to actually go and to seek and repair the things that are broken again in the fabric of our society, to undo the bonds of wickedness, wickedness to let the oppressed go, to share your bread with the hungry, to bring homeless into your house, to clothe the naked. And the indictment upon God's people is simply that. You want to seek me? You want to rightly relate to me? You not just, again, come and give me your tithes, but go and seek to do justice. Verse 7, the indictment gets even stronger. It says, share your food with the hungry. Provide the poor wanderer with shelter and clothe the naked. And the question of this idea of, well, who's the wanderer, right? Which is a very explicit term. In, in the passage that we read earlier in Matthew 25, Jesus says, here's the wanderer. When did you see me naked? And I tell you, what you did for even just the least of these, you did unto me. Both supporting the idea, again, that God not only identifies with the wicked, but how we are ought to go and do these acts of justice. More specifically, in verse 7, there's kind of another zinger, right? If I want to call it a zinger, and the zinger is simply this. 
Isaiah says, in the midst of all this, this is the type of fast I seek, and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. The reason why I want to draw your attention to that is just simply this. When Isaiah is doing that, he's giving something that's actually, again, revolutionary for his time. He's saying, when you look at the very people that he says in verse 7, the hungry, the poor wanderer, those, who that need shelter, those that need shelter, all these people in whom you're supposed to respond to, he says, how you're supposed to view and treat them is as you would your own flesh. Now, again, the phrasing of that identifies, especially in that time, with family. So it's when you look at someone who has been unjustly treated, you say to yourself, I don't see them as one who I pity, one who's just a victim of injustice, but you should identify with them as saying it's as though they were my own family. Now again, I have three children. They are 20, 16, and 14. And I don't know about you, but a parent's heart goes something like this. If someone picks on any of your children, as Christian as you might be, there's this vile instinct that says, I want to do everything possible to protect them. To say, you treat my child unjustly, I'm going to back them up. And in verse 7, it's exactly what Isaiah calls the people of God to. Look to your fellow man and don't see them as an other but see them, as God rightly does, an image-bearer, justly deserving dignity, honor, and worth. And do you see what it means there to do justice? To do justice means you go to those places where an image-bearer, let's say, is wronged. And again, we can think, I'm not going to draw where, you, where that might be for you, but whatever that might be, as you think about God's attention or the attention that the world gives you, There's a calling, a beckoning for us to be able to say, how do we respond as in faithfully relating to God to be able to, where there is a need for, for example, racial injustice, we seek what? Flourishing, wholeness, rightly relating to one another as God intended to be. And these are just some of the examples in which how we might relate to the world to bring the shalom, the peace of God in a broken world. As MLK put it, he says, an injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We as the people of God might say it this way. An injustice anywhere is an opportunity to bring the justice of God everywhere. I don't know about time, but I'm almost done. I promise. Follow with me. A fruitful relationship. Verses 8 through 14. In doing so, God's way, there's almost a contrast in Isaiah's voice and tone. and says, hey, if you do seek me this way, Respond to the call. Think in particular in verse 8. There seems this particular tone. There's a contrast of the religious activities that Israel were were motivated by. It says, rather than having a a fast that left them asking God, why have you not seen me? Why have you not taken notice of me? In verse 8, the shift says, then your light shall break forth. And so something happens if the people of God actually say, you know what? I'm not just going to seek you in fasting, but I'm actually going to take my eyes and see, again, the injustices of the world and actually seek to do something about it in cooperating with this gracious invitation of God. 
in verse 9, Yahweh himself will answer. Notice the chain. Genuine repentance is evidenced not only by their favor, but also, again, how God responds and says, this is how you rightly relate to me. And in doing so, you will see the fruitfulness of it. Again, verse 10, your light will rise in the darkness as a product of that fruitfulness. In verse 11, God will guide you. He will make your bones strong. In verse 12, and this is where I'm going to kind of have you see this, the repairer of the breach, the restorer of the streets in which we dwell in. And that's that very picture, right, of God's great redemption in our world, of what God is doing in this world. Fruitfulness is what? That we're coming in step with what God is doing. Restoring all things. And I love how the passage ends. And I think for the sake of time, I would just get closer. But the passage ends in verse 14 by simply saying this. The mouth of the Yahweh has spoken. This echoes in the sentiment not only of just Isaiah 120, but at least for me and as I was reading it, it almost sounds like an amen. So let it be in the people of God that they would, again, not be marked by a fasting that is an empty ritual. But rightly relating to God to be able to say, if you want to seek me, you will seek justice because, again, I am this God of justice. What's the response of us, the church? A couple things that we can do. I want to give practical points. The first is this. Biblical justice can be characterized as things like, one, an equal treatment for all. As you look about the brokenness of not only in the city of Memphis, but again around the world, which we would say, again, is God's creation. Anytime there's an unequal treatment, an injustice, would you as the church see that as a gracious invitation for you to get involved? Would you do more than that? Would you be able to say that there's a special concern? The second uh, application would be something like this. There's a special concern for those without power. That in particular, it's not just, again, this idea of equal treatment, but again, for those who are the most marginalized. The quartet of the, uh, of the time, again, the orphan, the widow, the immigrant, the poor, that was the indictment then. But what is it now for us? What is it now for the city of Memphis as you look around? And then very lastly, the application would be something to this effect. Be a people marked by radical generosity. And here's why. You know why the people of God historically have always been right there on the front lines of injustices? is because they realize just how much they've been given. Because you have been given so freely, we can give so freely. And that's not just finances. That's you getting involved within your particular local community. It's you trying to extend relationship, friendship, again, to uh, someone maybe of a different race that you haven't been involved in. It's you going out and dealing again with the social issues of our particular time and saying, I'm doing so because, again, I see that this, again, I've been given so much that I can go and actually give radically to those who might be in need. Leslie Newbegin, I quoted a lot of him from our class. Uh, was a missionary to India, came back to London, and had many prophetic things to say with the nature of the church. In a quote in the book, The Good Shepherd, here is what he says. It is a disastrous misunderstanding to think that we can enjoy salvation through Jesus Christ and at the same time regard action for justice in the world as a sort of an optional extra or even as an inferior substitute for the work of passing on the good news of salvation. Action for social justice, I like this ending, is salvation in action. Let me say that again. Action for social, just, social justice 
is salvation in action. Conclusion. Two more parts of conclusion. When I, when I received the invitation for gospel priorities, I thought of it a little bit like um, almost a New Year's resolution. And I say that because here's maybe the danger of whenever you've heard all the messages this month in gospel priorities. And I'm, I, I've, I listened to last week's sermon. I wanted to get an idea of what you've been uh, going through. We can hear these things, and again, maybe you made a New Year's resolution, for example, say, I'm going to go to the gym because I feel bad about, you know, where I'm at, and you do it for a couple weeks, and it's already ended. And here's the thing about this. Some of you may say, oh, pastor, you're right. We live in a fallen world, a broken world that has all these injustices. I'm going to receive this word, and I want to go out and do something about it. And you're motivated then by what? Guilt. When I was a pastor, I used to say this about a con- our congregation. I said, you know, in this room, I'd rather have a bunch of people fully in love with Jesus than instead being motivated by guilt and fear. And make th- let me make this distinction for you. If we're people motivated by guilt, you're only going to go as far as what you think your conscience feels as though it's appeased. Or if it's motivated by fear to think, oh, there's a sense of judgment and not being motivated by grace or motivated by the gospel, what we're going to do is enough to where we feel as again as though we are safe. But here's the distinction of love. When it's motivated out of love because of the gospel, it has no limits. So we, as the people of God, we can do so. Why? Because we see what Jesus himself himself has done. It's not guilt. It's the gospel. We fix our eyes on Jesus, the one who suffered injustice. Why? So that we might be justified. We do so because Jesus identified with the poor because he himself became poor. He was born into poverty. The son of man said he had no place to lay his head. When he died, when he was crucified, he died an unjust death. Familiar with injustice. Jesus was not just poor, he was oppressed. His trial was a mistrial of justice. Jesus knew what it meant to stand up to power and be killed for it. So we as the people of God, in response out of love for Christ, what can we do? We can say what? I I respond because Jesus not only became poor so that we might become rich in his grace and mercy. We were bankrupt and only by that generosity that we receive by faith in Jesus that moves us to be generous in responding to justice by love and gratitude. Final illustration, I promise. And this is fresh for me. I recently listened to a podcast from Mako Fujimura. Maki Fujimura is a Christian artist served actually as a ruling elder at Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. And in doing so, I've always heard of this illustration of kintsugi. Kintsugi is a Japanese form of art that's really fascinating because what it is, it takes broken pottery and it's filled with gold in the cracks and these Japanese artists remake it so that what was once broken is actually not only more beautiful but more valuable before it actually was before, than it was before. So all that to say is that's a great illustration. And Mako even says this. So that's like the gospel right in front of you. If you don't see it, my apologies, but I hope you do. But here's the thing in the podcast that was really fascinating. And I want to give a little bit of a background. As I mentioned to you, I'm, I'm, the son of an immig- I'm the son of an immigrant. My grandmother was a victim of the Japanese invasion um, under that time of comfort women. When she came to America, she was actually a political activist of really trying to bring the acknowledgement of that from the Japanese government uh, before us in terms, in terms of global atrocities. 
With that said is this, if you don't know this, historically speaking, Japanese and Koreans actually have a very sense of, of, of distant hate slash seeing themselves as enemies. So much in the fact that, you know, I heard when I was growing up, don't buy a, a Honda or don't buy a Toyota because they're made by Japanese. If you know the story of Michael O, oh, Michael O oh is now the president of Lausanne, and he went to China, Japan uh, to specifically serve as now a church planner, but eventually a president of a seminary, and now he serves as Lausanne. But he was compelled to go to Japan because he heard that very same narrative that I heard growing up, hate the Japanese. He said, where am I going to go and serve on missions? I'm going to go to the very place, to the people that my parents once told me to hate, that I want to love and to proclaim the gospel to. With that said is this, Mako describes, and I didn't know this until I heard the podcast, but here's what he says. In the midst of that Japanese invasion, which again, I want to just own as saying it's a horrific part again of the story where there was injustices. Japanese people would take Korean bowls that were used to serve noodles and tea, or noodles, and actually realize that it was a very aesthetic and a very beautiful thing, and then take it back to Japan. And obviously because of time, because of earthquakes and other things, these very bowls would break. And what was almost fascinating is that they would take these bowls and actually use them to serve them to emperors, to shoguns, and all the high elite of the society. One of these pieces had been taken and was broken. And so this Kintsugi artist, right, took this bowl and remended it to be able to say, you know what, we want to do this very specific because we want to show what peace looks like. What was broken, mended with gold, is made more beautiful than it was before. And I'll be honest, when I, when I heard this podcast, I literally was like almost to tears because I thought to myself, isn't this the great picture, not only of justice, but of reconciliation? What's almost fascinating, he conjectures on this. I'm going to make sure you hear this. This is not fact. But he says, even during Japanese, uh, the time in which there was massive persecution against Christians, at least Mako conjectures that somehow maybe this was this very bowl that was taken by Korea, from Korea, brought into Japan in the midst of all that persecution that the church had gone under. This is what we see in Martin Scorsese's movie, Silence. Might have been used for the Eucharist. And I think to myself, at least in terms of understanding, is that when we think about what God is doing in this world, it's like Kintsugi. The broken things that we see, the fractures of our society, and this is that call of reconciliation. It's that call of injustice. It's that call that we heard in the very beginning. To do justice means to go places where the fabric of shalom has been broken. And God is mending it together to make it beautiful and even more valuable. Let's be those people that pursue justice in that way. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we come this morning... And we are reminded that this great gospel invitation that you give us, that you indeed are a God of justice. We seek to join you in the great work that you're doing within our world to renew all things unto you, to reflect the very kingdom of God that we await. Father, would your people this morning, as a response of your word, go forth and respond to this invitation to do justice, to go to the places where there is brokenness, and to bring the peace, the justice, the love, the gospel of Christ, that we might see, indeed, the glory of God break through in our present day and age. May we see that, indeed, the gospel brings justice for all as it's been brought to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.